Welcome to the Empowering Midlife Wellness Podcast, where we talk about everything to do with midlife women's wellness and creating the best second half of life. I'm your host, Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith. I'm a board-certified gynecologist, certified menopause practitioner and hormone replacement specialist, as well as an ICF-certified life and leadership coach and lots of other things. So if you want to check me out and learn about my private practice and other offerings, my website is www www.drsusan.com. That's D-R-S-U-S-A-N.com. It's my commitment to stay neutral by not accepting advertising dollars from sponsors. So all of these episodes are offered freely. And the best way that you can help this podcast is to share it with your friends, leave a positive review, and also keep in mind this is simultaneously posted in video format on YouTube, where you can find me by searching for Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith. This week on Empowering Midlife Wellness, I'm sharing a little bit more information about what ideal hormone levels are when we're taking hormone replacement. And there's a lot of controversy about this, but I'm gonna give you some examples of what works in my practice and what works in my body. I hope that helps. Hi friends, and welcome to this week's episode. I get lots and lots of questions about what is the ideal level for various hormones when we're taking hormone replacement. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit more in detail. So when we're talking about hormone replacement for postmenopausal or perimenopausal women, of course, we're talking about three primary hormones, estradiol, progesterone, and testosterone. So just as a tiny little review, back when we were, say, 12, we started making all three of those hormones in pretty large quantities, and they fluctuated up and down with our cycle, but they were always present. And then, of course, at some point later in the future, all of those hormones dropped to levels of zero or close to zero. And you remember from previous talks that I've given that testosterone actually can be produced in small amounts from the ovaries or even from the adrenal gland. So sometimes when we check hormones in women who've had their ovaries removed, they're going to have pretty much zero estrogen and progesterone, of course, because that comes from the ovaries. But they may still have a small amount of testosterone coming from their adrenal gland. But however we slice it, once we're menopausal, all three of those hormones are either zero or pretty dang low. So We're just going to assume, for the sake of this discussion, that we're already on board with the idea of taking hormone replacement, because that's just pretty clearly shown as a good idea by science. But then how much should we take? And there's just no one black and white answer to that question. Uh, Some doctors, uh, this is how I was taught traditionally, we were taught to give enough estrogen so that the patient's symptoms went away. And we didn't check blood. We just said, okay, if your hot flashes are gone, your night sweats are gone, your vaginal dryness is gone, then you're good. And that's a pretty sensible way to go. I mean, you don't necessarily have to draw blood. So if you are menopausal and you're having hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, you put on an estradiol patch, for example, and all those things go away, well, one can assume that your level is good. Because if we're only using it for symptom relief, then that, of course, would make sense. Now, no one has ever documented what the ideal blood level is in order to achieve all the other health benefits that we're going after, like osteoporosis prevention, Alzheimer's reduction, cardiovascular disease reduction, colon cancer reduction. No one really knows. But the assumption is that if your symptoms are gone, 
then you have enough estradiol in your system that it's basically working for you. So you could go with that idea. That is not a bad idea. Now, I kind of like data. So I do draw blood, and that's my preference. Not everybody agrees with it. A lot of my colleagues say, why on earth would you draw the blood of a postmenopausal woman because her hormones are all going to be zero? Well, actually, they're not always zero. It can be quite interesting. Uh, for example, we can make uh, estradiol from our peripheral tissue, like our body fat. We're not going to make progesterone, that's true. And as I mentioned, we can make testosterone a little bit from the ovaries or from the adrenal glands. So I do actually think it's worthwhile checking hormone levels as a baseline, just for interest. Now, if you're in a place where that's not available, uh, you know, it's not life or death, you can certainly put on an estrogen patch or get an estrogen pellet without doing blood levels but I prefer to do it. Now, because we do blood levels, I've had so much experience in my own practice and with myself looking at what numbers work for various women. And so for estradiol, let's talk about that one first. When you're treated, and that would be, in my opinion, of course, we don't want to give it by mouth because that increases the risk of blood clotting. But if you're using a patch or a pellet, those would be the two ways that I recommend because you're getting it 24-7. I'll talk about creams and other things in a moment, but when we draw your blood, typically patients feel good when their blood levels are somewhere in the 40 to 80 range. And remember, estradiol is measured in particular units called nanograms per deciliter, which doesn't much matter, but the number 40 to 80 seems to be where most patients feel good. Now, many patients, when it gets higher than 80 or 100, they start experiencing Side effects like breast tenderness, water retention. If they have a uterus, sometimes they'll start bleeding. So we don't want that. So too much estrogen definitely is not a good thing. Just like too much of everything is not a good thing. So around 40 to 80. Now, when we're below 40, many or most patients will start having symptoms like hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness. And so if you are getting your blood drawn, that's kind of a good target range to be in. Another thing that we look at, just because it's interesting, is a hormone called follicle-stimulating hormone. So FSH, or follicle-stimulating hormone, is a pituitary hormone, so it comes from your brain, and its sole purpose in life is to stimulate your ovaries to produce estrogen. So when we're young and fertile, we just make a tiny little bit of FSH, and poof, the ovaries wake up. So when we're young and fertile, FSH levels are very low, like five or lower. When FSH gets higher, that means that your brain is really trying to push the ovaries along. So as we're getting closer to menopause, we see FSH going up because that hormone is trying really hard to make some estrogen. It can get as high as 100 or more. So when we're menopausal, even if we're 80 years old, we still have high FSH. It's kind of a sad story that that little hormone never realizes that it's not going to work and it just keeps on trying. There's some very interesting literature ongoing about what the effects are of having very high FSH circulating in our body all the time because for sure it must be doing something. We don't know yet, but it could possibly be one of the things that's related to the changes that occur in our brain as a result of being estrogen depleted. So one cool thing that we look for when you're on estrogen is not only that your level is in the kind of 40 to 80 range, but also we see your FSH drop by about 50%. So just say your FSH was 80 or 100, we want it to be 
you know, 40 or lower. And that shows that the pituitary is calming down. It doesn't have all the firemen out anymore. Like, oh my God, what's going on? We need to make some estrogen. I kind of think of it like, it's like, whoa, we did it. We made some estrogen. We can put our feet up and we can say, uh, no, you didn't. We actually gave it to her, but go ahead and put your feet up anyway. <laughs> so if we see your estrogen's in the right level and your FSH has come down appropriately, that is a good indicator that your body is getting enough. Now, when we were young and fertile, estradiol would range from maybe 100 during our period to 500 or sometimes even higher when we're ovulating. So we don't need levels that high. If my level got up over 100, like I said, I'd have breast tenderness. So we certainly don't want it to be 300, 400. We do not need it to be that high for bone protection, vaginal dryness protection, all of those great things. 40 to 80 is good. And if you don't have access to a lab, it is absolutely appropriate to follow that guideline of just getting enough so that your symptoms go away. So that's okay too, but I kind of like data. And you know, it is interesting that different people have different magic numbers. So I love mine to be around 50. When mine gets much higher than that, I get breast tenderness. As soon as it gets under 40, I have hot flashes. I have other patients that like it to be closer to 80. And so we kind of find your number, which I think is, why not? It's a cool idea. So each of our patients has the number that feels best for them, and then we try to keep it there, but it's usually right about in that range. So that's just for estradiol. Now, um, that's assuming that you're postmenopausal and your estradiol was starting at something close to zero. So if you're perimenopausal, of course, your estradiol is still being produced, but it's very up and down. So you may have days when it's really low, like during your cycle, when it is below 40, and you can have hot flashes and night sweats for three or four days, and then they go away because it comes up again, and you can actually have symptoms of high estrogen, like breast tenderness, followed two weeks later by symptoms of low estrogen. And so in that case, your levels could be going from 500 to 30. So in that patient who's perimenopausal, we would not want to give you any extra estrogen but I'm talking about in postmenopausal patients. So really important if you're still having periods, checking your hormone levels is very critical to know where you are in your cycle. Because if we check it around ovulation versus around your period, we're going to get completely different numbers. You know, we might get 500 or we might get 20. And so when doctors check hormones in a woman who's still having cycles and they don't ask her what day of the cycle it is or where she is in her menstrual cycle as far as we say day one is the first day of your period so we would expect on day one estradiol would be very low and if we measure it two weeks later it could be very high so be very careful if your doctor checks your hormones if you're still having periods that they take into account where you are in your cycle because it's all over the place so mostly I'm talking about postmenopausal women like me my estradiol would be zero every single day from now until the end of time, unless I took some. So now mine is in the 40 to 60 range. I feel great. No hot flashes. Vaginal dryness is gone. So that's awesome. And my FSH was 120 and now it's 30. So my pituitary gland has got its feet up. It's relaxing. And all of that is great. So progesterone is interesting. Now, progesterone, I recommend taking it by mouth at night 
because it makes you sleepy, which is fantastic because insomnia is such a prevalent symptom for so many of us when we're perimenopausal or menopausal. And remember, progesterone is unique amongst those three hormones because it does not have an adverse effect on the liver. So you can safely take it by mouth. It doesn't increase blood clotting factors. It doesn't mess with your liver function and it makes you sleepy. So the type of progesterone that I take, which is plant-based bioidentical progesterone, lasts for about eight hours. So it's designed to last during the time that you're asleep, because if you took it during the day, you'd be sleepy. And I remember when I was an infertility patient, I was having to do progesterone injections and I could fall asleep at a traffic light. I mean, it made me so sleepy. It's like taking Benadryl. So definitely take progesterone at night. Now, because of that, when, if we check progesterone, and generally that would be during the day because you're coming into the office to get your blood drawn, it's going to be really low. Now, if we came over to your house and drew your blood at midnight, we'd see a much higher number. So progesterone levels are not particularly important. We don't really need to check them in postmenopausal women except just for interest. Again, I like data. So patients sometimes do like to see, oh, my progesterone's zero. Of course it is. But it, you know, it kind of makes you feel less crazy to see, wow, yeah, I get why I'm feeling so crummy and why I'm not sleeping and why I'm grumpy because I don't have any progesterone. So you know, it can be useful information, even though it's not a surprise when it comes back at zero. So there's no ideal blood level for progesterone during the day, because we kind of want it to be mostly out of your system. Um, a little bit more about progesterone. If you were using a cream, I would throw it away. Uh, progesterone is a very large molecule. It is not absorbed well through the skin. So it's very interesting if you put progesterone cream on and then we measure your blood levels, it's barely going to change. And you're not going to feel sleepy because you're actually not getting any or much at all. So if you're taking progesterone, the standard is to take at least 100 milligrams if you have a uterus. The reason why is that studies have shown that 100 milligrams of progesterone is enough to prevent uterine cancer, which is one of the cool benefits of progesterone. And if you don't have a uterus, you don't have to take it at all unless you want to get the benefit for sleep. So we're not too worried about hormone levels with progesterone, but we do want to make sure you're getting at least 100 milligrams in order to prevent uterine cancer. And much more important than that, it prevents bleeding because if you're just taking estrogen, you can start bleeding and that's just annoying. Very, very unlikely would it be cancer, but who wants to bleed when we're menopausal? That's one of the best things about being a menopausal, right? We don't have to bleed. So progesterone prevents bleeding, makes you sleep, don't worry about the blood levels because it's designed to wear off by the morning so that you're not sleepy. And then uh, testosterone. Well, there's lots of talk back and forth um, on social media about testosterone levels. And frequently, I agree with the people who say that women are getting too much testosterone in many settings. And that is absolutely true. We do not want too much testosterone. But testosterone is very beneficial. I've talked about it a lot here for so many things. Sex drive, uh, bone health, it's along with estrogen, very good for preventing osteoporosis. It helps muscle conservation. It helps us to build muscle if we're lifting weights. Helps a lot of people with sleep. It's also cardioprotective. It has a lot of benefits. And the best one, perhaps, is that many studies now have shown that it reduces the incidence of breast cancer, which is so cool. And such a 180 from what we've been talking about for the past 20 years regarding hormone replacement, increasing the risk of breast cancer. 
if you took estradiol and testosterone, actually your risk of breast cancer would be lower than if you didn't take anything, which is, I know that's hard for many of you to believe, but it takes a while to get these new ideas into our brains. But it's true, lots and lots of studies to support that. So how much testosterone do we need? Well, uh, there's a company called BioT, uh, very well known for making pellets, and, and they've, done, they've trained a lot of doctors, including me. My opinion is that their uh, recommendation is too high, and many doctors agree with that. Uh, so BioT uh, trains their doctors to get testosterone levels in the 150 to 250 range. Now, I think that's too high because when testosterone is over 200, it does increase the risk of minor symptoms. Now, we don't want these, but oily skin, acne, some hair growth. Um, for long term, if our testosterone stays over 250, we can start experiencing hair loss. And then if it gets significantly higher than that, like three, 400, we can have voice deepening, which can be permanent. Clitoral enlargement also can be permanent. So it's dangerous. Uh, so absolutely, testosterone should not be too high. I 100% agree with that. Now, on the other hand, um, we do want to give testosterone in levels that are enough to provide the benefits that I was talking about. So all of the studies done on testosterone and breast cancer reduction, for example, we're looking at hormone pellets uh, for the reason that it's much easier to study something that's stable all day and relatively uh, similar between patients. So if they were doing studies on a cream, for example, you know, that would shoot up really high and then drop down within four hours. It would be very difficult to compare one patient to another. So testosterone pellets uh, were used in all of the studies that I know of uh, on breast cancer reduction related to testosterone, mostly authored by a fantastic doctor, Rebecca Glazer, who's a breast oncologist. I'll put a link to her website here. You can look at all of her research. Uh, but again, they were using those similar levels that I was talking about. Now, I have found in my own body and in our very large patient population that we get the same benefits with lower levels and fewer side effects. So personally, I like mine to be 100 to 150. I feel great. I've got great libido. My muscle mass is really good. My bone health is excellent. My labs look great. I don't have acne. don't have hair growth. So you really can have your cake and eat it too in that respect. You can get the higher levels of testosterone than would occur in nature, and I'll talk about that in a second. But 100 to 150 is a good goal. No higher than 200 for sure. Um, I have quite a few patients who have had levels of 250, and I tell them, you know, I really recommend dropping your dose down, and they're like, please don't. I feel fantastic. And so, you know, I ultimately believe it's your body and your choice. So if a patient really loves uh, having a higher level, and many do. I'll just you know note that I've told her that she might develop some of those side effects, but many patients don't have them, so I'm not suggesting that you will have side effects if your testosterone's 250. It's just that the risk of those side effects goes up. If we keep it around the 150 range, pretty much zero side effects and all the benefit. Now, uh, one of the things that's going around on social media was looking at uh, showing an example of a patient who had a testosterone of 270, which I agree is really too high. Uh, but the doctor who was discussing this was looking at what the lab considers the normal range or the reference range, which is 2 to 45. 
Well, that is if you're not taking testosterone. We would normally have testosterone levels of under 50. But for women in our age, we actually do want to elevate testosterone to slightly supra or higher than physiologic levels. So we talk about supra physiologic testosterone levels for women, but just a little bit higher than physiologic, that 100 to 150 range. And that is because at our age, we need a little extra help because we're losing bone, we're losing muscle, our sex drive is going down. And with lower levels of testosterone, we don't see those benefits. So it is a little bit confusing. If you want to look at the lab reference range, that is not at all saying that's what's optimal. That is simply saying that is what women have. So when you think about lab reference ranges, and I've talked about this in an earlier video, the lab is simply saying this is what 95% of our patient population has. It's by no means saying that it's optimal or that you want to be in that range. It's just saying that that's what most people have. So yeah, if you're not on testosterone, most people will be between zero and 50. And that's not necessarily good because I had a testosterone of zero and I felt absolutely horrible. I had no sex drive. I was losing muscle. I couldn't sleep. I had no energy. So now that it's higher, not only do I get those many health benefits, but I also don't have any side effects. So I agree 100% that many women are getting too much. I've had patients come into my office with levels of 500 or more. And if that's only for a short time, no harm is done, uh, by the way, because if you were getting a hormone pellet, for example, it does wear off after a few months. So we wouldn't run into side effects generally if you had it a little too high for a short time. So if you get your blood drawn and it's higher than we expected it to be, maybe it comes back at 300 or something, nothing bad is going to happen overnight. It's just we don't want to keep it there. So in that patient, we would drop the dose down the next time she gets a pellet, if she's using a pellet. Now, I've talked a lot about how I dose very conservatively for that very reason, because some patients are quite rapid absorbers. or Everybody absorbs things differently. So I think it's very prudent to start at a lower level, especially a much lower level than companies like BioT suggest, that's way too aggressive. If you use their calculator, you'd have 10 or 20% of your patients with side effects. So if any providers are watching this video, do not use that calculator, just drop it down. Um, and we have found in our practice when we do that and then measure blood levels six weeks after the pellet that you know we're usually getting into that target range. And occasionally if a patient does get a little bit too high, it drops down very quickly. So I like the 100 to 150 goal, no higher than 200. And if it is a little higher, don't panic. It doesn't mean anything terrible is going to happen. It will wear off, and then next time you get a pellet, we would just drop the dose. Now, regarding testosterone pellet dosing, there's another phenomenon that happens. So just say you started at zero like me, and then your level goes up to 150, and you're feeling great. And then 12 weeks later, you get another pellet. Well, you're not starting at zero, you still got some of that old pellet in there. So there's a phenomenon called a stacking effect where with each pellet, we see the level go up. So it's very prudent actually over time to lower the dose of the pellet that we're giving. And that's why we do check blood fairly often because if you only check once every year or two, you might have started at 150 and then it's kind of crept up and now you're at 500. So it's very important if you're getting pellets to check your levels quite frequently, like at least twice a year. 
um, just so that we don't run into that stacking effect. So totally agree. A lot of people are getting too much. In fact, I cannot think of uh, an exclusion to that rule. 100% of patients that I've met who did not like pellets or had any type of adverse effect from them got too much. And so it really is important to manage that very critically. Now, just to put in perspective, men, uh, their ideal range is more like 800 to 1200. So when I'm doing uh, pellets for men, we're looking at ranges that are completely different. So a level of 270, for example, is certainly not a male level, not even close. That would be dangerously low for a man. Uh, but certainly we don't want to have a hormone level of 800 unless we're doing a female to male gender transition, and, and that would be very effective in that case. So estradiol, 40 to 80, progesterone, doesn't matter, so long as you're getting 100 milligrams at least at night. And I actually take 200 milligrams because it's better for sleep. So more is okay in that case because the only side effect is it makes you sleepy, and I really like that one. And then testosterone, 100 to 150, no more than 200. If it gets a little higher than that, we just drop it down on the next pellet. So that's the main three hormones that we're talking about when we're talking about hormone replacement. And then I just wanted to put a little plug in for some other very important hormones. Um, I've done some videos about thyroid before. It's really important that you check not only the TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone. You know, traditionally trained doctors like me, we're trained to just check TSH. And if your TSH was normal, on you go. You were told that you were fine. That is actually not enough. So remember I was talking about FSH, the follicle-stimulating hormone? TSH is similar. It's a pituitary hormone, and its primary job in life is to stimulate your thyroid. So if it sees that it's a little pokey or slow, it makes more. So just like FSH goes up when our estradiol goes down, TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone, goes up when our thyroid function is declining. So a high TSH definitely is an indication that your thyroid is not optimal. But we can also have a normal TSH and have low thyroid function because TSH does not always go up when our thyroid function is low. And it usually responds to the level of the hormone called T4. Well, what does that mean? You could have a normal T4 and your pituitary gland would be thinking everything's fine, but you could have a very low T3. And T3 is the active form of thyroid. So that's actually what your body sees. And why would that happen? Well, we make T4 and T3 from our thyroid gland and our neck in about a 14 to 1 ratio. So mostly T4, which is the storage form of thyroid. And we make a little bit of T3. But most of the T3 that we have in our system is generated from conversion of T4 into T3. So there's a little enzyme that does that job. And just like a lot of other things, as we get older, that enzyme sometimes doesn't work so well. So you can be making lots of T4, and the conversion isn't happening very well. So it's so common, and this might have happened to you, that you go to your doctor, they check your TSH, maybe they even check your T4, and they're both perfect, and they say, oh, you're great, your, your thyroid's not low, even though you've got 15 low thyroid symptoms, and they never checked your T3. And I cannot count the number of patients that I've had who have been through years of going to the doctor with a list of low thyroid symptoms like weight gain, dry skin, cold hands and feet, loss of hair from the eyebrows, hair loss, changes in hair, skin, nails, whole long list, constipation, I mean, it's a very long list. 
and they're told their thyroid's normal because their T4 is normal and their TSH is normal, but when we check, their T3 is actually very low. So very important to check free T3. So what does free mean? Free means it's not bound to protein because if it's bound to protein, it's not usable. So what your body can see, kind of the bottom line, so to speak, about what's available in your body is your free T3. So make sure you check it. And do not look at what the lab calls the reference range. That doesn't mean the optimal range. Again, that simply means 95% of their patients fall within that range, and it's an incredibly broad range. So for a free T3, for example, some labs might say anywhere from 2 to 4.5 will flag as normal. Well, if you have a free T3 of 2, you feel horrible. <laughs> All of those low thyroid symptoms that I mentioned. If you have a free T3 of 4.5, you probably also feel horrible. You would have opposite symptoms like jitteriness, anxiety, insomnia, diarrhea, feeling hot, like opposite, metabolism too high. Uh, some people think that sounds like a good idea because you lose weight, but it is not a healthy thing at all. It causes heart disease, osteoporosis. We do not want to have high thyroid. But right in the middle, about 3 to 3.5 is a good place for T3 to be. And I'm talking about free T3. So 3 to 3.5 is good. A little bit higher is fine, but we do not want it over 4.5 because that's too high. So anytime it gets under 3, many people are starting to be symptomatic, certainly if it's getting anywhere close to 2. And then another hormone that people ask me about all the time is cortisol, because cortisol gets a lot of attention because it is uh, one of our primary stress hormones. So cortisol comes from our adrenal gland. It's really important to have cortisol because when you need to run away from a tiger or something similar, uh, we have a big increase in cortisol. It encourages sugar to get into our cells so that we can run fast and get away from danger. But it also goes up when we're under emotional stress because our body really cannot tell the difference between emotional stress and physical stress. So very high levels of cortisol are associated with stress usually, whether it's emotional stress or you know physical stress from an injury or working out too much or not sleeping enough or anything that puts your body under stress. Now, cortisol fluctuates throughout the day. It's supposed to. We want it to be very low at night when you're sleeping, and then it should come up right as you're waking, and we want it to stay fairly elevated during the day and then drop again at night. So checking cortisol is tricky. If we just draw your blood, kind of like I was talking about with your uh, estradiol if you're having cycles, it makes a huge difference what time of the day it's checked. So if you were in a study... You would have to check your cortisol six times, at least, during a 24-hour period in order to develop what's called a cortisol curve. So if we just check it once, it would, and I've had this happen where patients have had their cortisol checked first thing in the morning and the doctor says it's high. Well, it's supposed to be high <laughs> first thing in the morning. Now, if we came over to your house and drew it at midnight, we would want it to be low. And so I generally don't check cortisol for that reason. There are some home tests you can actually get. I, I checked one out and bought one on Amazon where you can do a salivary test six times a day at home on your own. Yeah, it's not particularly accurate, but it can be kind of fun. Honestly, with cortisol, I can talk to a patient and they can tell me about their lifestyle and we can probably guess what's going on with their cortisol. Another cool way to check it at night is with something like my favorite Aura Ring, O-U-R-A, because elevated cortisol is associated with an elevated resting heart rate. 
when we're sleeping. So one of the pieces of data that this ring, and there's other things like the WHOOP band and other sleep monitors that will actually measure your heart rate when you're sleeping. And the lower your heart rate is, the better. So we ideally want our heart rate to go down in the middle of the night be really low and then to slowly come up. And so the heart rate that we're seeing does pretty closely correlate with your cortisol level. So if you're really stressed out or you ate a whole bunch of sugar or alcohol right before bed and your resting heart rate is higher than usual, that's because your cortisol is high. Now I experienced, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, going to a silent meditation retreat for four days and my resting heart rate dropped down to 45. It's usually about 50. I mean, it dropped significantly because my nervous system was calmed down. So in other words, we don't have to check it. Uh, the treatment for elevated cortisol is lifestyle change, uh, stuff that you already know, like yoga, meditation, going for a walk, doing something relaxing, taking a warm bath, not eating sugar and alcohol right before bed. So that one I generally do not check. And if somebody's really interested to find out about it, you can buy a home test and do the salivary check at home. And that will show you what your cortisol curve looks like. And again, we want it to be low at night, come up so that you can wake up and then stay fairly elevated through the day and then drop down again. But if we've got high cortisol at night, that's gonna keep us awake. It's a fat storing hormone because it draws sugar into our system so that we can run away. So we do not want elevated cortisol at night. So that's just a little bit of information about what I look for when I'm drawing your blood. Um, so none of those are set in stone. And I did wanna mention a little bit about creams. I touched on testosterone cream, but also similar with estradiol cream. If we're using a cream, on our inner arms or thighs, which is a typical place to put it. We're gonna see the level go up very quickly in the first hour, and then after about four hours, it'll drop back down to zero. So it's going up and down like this, and this is one reason why I'm not a fan of estradiol and testosterone creams, because we do not get stable levels at all. And so I would not get your blood drawn if you're using a cream, uh, because you'll get a completely different result if you check it an hour after you put the cream on versus later in the day. It literally could be, for example, estradiol could be 400 and then it could be zero in the same day. So if someone's using a cream, I don't even check it because who knows, it could be all over the place. Same with testosterone cream, shoots up really high, drops down to almost zero, it gets out of your system very, very quickly. So you have to use it twice a day and it's a zigzaggy type of experience. In fact, we see more side effects with testosterone cream because it gets so high, we can get oily skin and acne even for that brief couple of hours. Anyway, another reason why I like pellets because it's always the same so long as you get the right dose. And then I mentioned progesterone cream. You can throw it away. It really is not absorbed into your system through the skin much at all. So hope that makes sense. I hope you learned something. If you did, share it with your friends. And I can't wait to see you next week. Mm -hmm.